Right? And that's mm-hmm. the point. Most of the time, employees aren't trying to subvert policies and tactics just because. They're trying to be more efficient. They're trying to get their jobs done better. And it is the good CISOs who realize that and try and figure out ways where you, you go in and you approach every problem differently. You approach it and say, okay, I understand the goal you're trying to accomplish. So how can I help you accomplish that while we mitigate risk associated with it? Welcome back to The Zero Hour. I'm George Comedy. I'm Ashley Stone. And today we are talking to Delve Risk. Specifically, we are talking to Anthony Johnson and Larry Whiteside Jr., two longstanding and upstanding cybersecurity industry veterans. If I'm being honest, I could probably listen to those two talk all day. They're just so insightful, um, incredibly forward thinking, and I love hearing everything they have to say as it relates to being a CISO um, and just being purposeful and leaning forward as a cybersecurity leader. Yeah, I mean, this this conversation could have gone on for like five hours. They're easy to talk to. They're hilarious. They've got good, illustrative stories from their uh, careers. And, um, and also we get into the very important topic of how cybersecurity can become more inclusive and also as an industry, how it can help close the wealth gap among minority communities. Anyway, there's a lot in there. So without further ado, let's turn it over to Anthony Johnson and Larry Whiteside, Jr., Here we are with uh, Delve Risk. We've got Larry Whiteside Jr. We have Anthony Johnson. Thank you for joining us, gentlemen. Uh, Let's start out with, I mean, it's very clear that both of you have powerful and impressive resumes. Um, So why don't we start with you, Anthony, and we'll just get your origin story about how you both teamed up to, to work on Delve Risk. Sure. Um, so, um, Larry and I have both been in this, you know, been in the cybersecurity space for a long time. Um, me personally, from an Air Force Genesis, you know, um, red teamer, all the way up through a number of CISO roles, and uh, we've. I, I, it's hard to think about how long we've actually known each other, just because um, it's been a while. Um, and, and, and it's weird because you know, in the, in the security space, it is, it's a big world, but it's a small world. Right. And then um, you, you realize, you're like, oh, wow, like we've been on there, there. Like, how far back do we go? Like, I, you know, I, I don't know. Um, about a year ago is when I started to form uh, Delve Risk. And, um, you know, we were talking uh, just about a number of things. Um, and, you know, Larry's just been such a, um, a, a powerhouse, particularly on the driving a lot of the diversity components of the ICMCP, um, and that we've just remained in contact. And uh, I want to say, earlier this year, I said, Hey, I've got a whole bunch of things going on. This is crazy. Can you, can you help out on, on some things? And he graciously said, yeah. And so he's been working with uh, us as we kind of think through a lot of the content that we create, um, particularly as we're looking at the next version of, of, of data sets, um, and then a, a number of the relationships. So we get to strategize, work on some cool things, work on client engagement stuff. Um, and so it's been, it's been a good, it's been good. Yeah, I'll, I'll add to that. So it was at Gasparilla this year. So AJ happened to be in town this year for the Tampa Gasparilla Festival. That's right. There is a cyber conference that happens every year for that. I think this is the fifth year in a row. And he was at that and we ran into each other. I'm like, hey, what, what you got going on? I was in transition. He was in transition. Um, uh, and, and he was like, hey. I'm coming with this idea. I started this company. I've got this thing going on. He started explaining it to me. I'm like, holy smoly. I'm like, wait, so you've learned a way to really productize what we've been giving away for years for free. You know, <laughs> let's talk. <laughs> like, yeah. like, let's talk. Let's, let's dive into that a little bit more. And so we then started having conversations related to it and, and, you know, whiteboarding and figuring it out. And so this is his brainchild. Um, and, and so I said, listen, however you need my help, let me know. And, and I will, I will hit the ground and, and run, you know, run this with you and we'll, we'll make this happen. So it's fun. Definitely. A lot of fun. Oh, wow. I love that. So can we take a step back and can you guys share how you found your way into cybersecurity? Anthony briefly mentioned Air Force, but I'd love to hear both of your stories. Yeah. um, So for (laughs) this sounds bad, but like for me, when I first got into like computers, it, it all started because I couldn't beat a video game. 
to be honest, right? Like that was, I could not be a video game. I was young. I was in my teens. And then I learned that you could like cheat and manipulate the code and like change parameters. And I was like, oh, okay. Like this is how I win. Um, and so for me, for me, right? Like, and, and that's where I, I, I love about like hacking and red teaming because it's, it's not necessarily bad or nefarious, but you're taking something and you're, you get to be creative. You're like, okay, so the rules say this, but what if I do this and, oh, it, it reacts a little bit differently, right? Oh, it, how does it handle if I do a buffer over? Oh, oh, okay. So I can, I can create a new set of rules. Um, and so when I started to do that and really started to get into it, um, particularly within the Air Force, it was a cool, fun thing. You know, I love the emerging technology aspect. It was, um, you, you get to, um, I would say also, you got to learn just by geeking out on the internet and talking with people, as opposed to having to go to a dedicated school for this. Right. Um, so I got, it was a, a lot of self-study, um, particularly then. So that's how I got into it. Um, and it's been, you know, fascinating and, and exciting from, for me. How about you, Larry? Yeah. So, so it's funny. Um, so me, it's a little different, but similar at the same time. So I learned about my mother divorced my dad and we moved from the, the, the hood, right. To the North side of town and to my mom, my sister and I into a one bedroom apartment. And my mom put me in a predominantly white high school because for her, it was an opportunity. And I got introduced to computers for the first time. And I was like, oh, and I learned Fortran, uh, Fortran and Pascal. I'm dating myself a little, I know. But uh, learning Fortran and Pascal, I became I'm like, wait, I can write this stuff called code and create games to do this stuff. And I can, I was like, oh, that was so cool. So I thought I was going to be a developer. I thought I, thought I was going to write code my entire life. Like that's what I, at that point, I made the determination a junior year that I'm going to write code. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life. So I majored in computer science in college. And then while in college, got an internship at, uh, through a sub at Motorola. Great. Like, this is what I've always wanted to do. And I get there and I start doing it 12 hours a day and I hated it immediately. <laughs> it was so ridiculous. <laughs> right? Staring at a monochrome screen, going through, I, I hated every aspect of it. So then they started saying, listen, how about you try and break modules, right? How about you take the modules and sure. compile them and try and break each one to make it do something different? And that I loved. And yeah. so, so that is what got my mind into it. Um, it was in me actually joining the Air Force, similar to uh, AJ. I joined the Air Force. And when I got my commission, even though both of my grandfathers were trying to get me to be pilots because they were Tuskegee Airmen, they, they wanted me to fly. I had zero interest in flying. <laughs> One of my grandfather's real, real statement to me is that technology thing is going to go away. We're always going to need pilots. Right. So don't worry about the technology <laughs> stuff. Just focus on that. I'm like, let's tell it to you. Cyber <laughs> command. <laughs> right. So, but I'm um, getting into the air force um, uh, in the early to mid nineties when the air force was starting to go through its digital transformation of building networks and uh, building network infrastructure and uh, all of that stuff is when I really got thrust into it. And so that was the beginning of, you know, where I am today. And, and the, the, that coding for me, similarly, if you heard what AJ said, he said, well, if, what if I do this, then I can do that, right? That if then else mentality, that if this, then that type of mentality is the way of thinking that if you develop that at a certain age in your life, you can come in this career for them and be really, really good because you start thinking in that mode and everything that you do, if this, then that, well, it's supposed to be if this, then that, but if this, then that, and you start thinking in those parameters, it, it'll allow you to be really successful. And I think AJ and I have sort of been able to take advantage of that. Yeah, that's that's interesting because I was just on a panel last week and somebody uh, with the sort of Dutch Digital Trust Center, which is tasked with helping Dutch businesses uh, become more cyber resilient, was saying, you know, you need to understand that everyone is a hacker and that includes your employees. If you're forbidding certain technologies or you're trying to force them down a VPN that's like really slow and not allowing them to do their work, they're going to find a workaround and they may not consider themselves a hacker quote unquote, like they're not in the code, but they will find a solution. And it was just, I think that speaks to a lot of what we're going to get to today about it, it, process. It does. And, and, and I, I think that it's important to recognize that like your really great employees are often the ones, like they're going to find a way to make your business rock. Right. And Even if as, it's not approved. And, 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 right. and, no, absolutely. At the end of the day, right? Like that's a, it's an important thing. Cause as the, you, you drive the P and L, 
and you're like, hey, this is our policy. And they're like, yeah, but I, it wasn't going to work. I had to do it. We got the deal done. And you're like, you don't work. Okay. Well, good. Like, what do you say to that? No, that, and that's the point. Most of the time, employees aren't trying to subvert policies and tactics just because. They're trying to be more efficient. They're trying to get their jobs done better. And it is the good CISOs who realize that and try and figure out ways where you, you go in and you approach every problem differently. You approach it and say, okay, I understand the goal you're trying to accomplish. So how can I help you accomplish that? while we mitigate risk associated with it yep. versus just saying, well, no, 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 policy says we can't do that. So we're like, and we're not having a conversation and you turn away. And so we've, the good leaders evolved to that. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that's an important thing, right? And, you know, and particularly in kind of tying this back to what I mean, also what you, what you guys do, right? Like when you, when you, when you think about that in, in the construct of messaging communication, it's like, People will talk about a topic or talk about and they want to meet a customer where they where the customer wants to be met. Right. And yep. if they if they, they, they engage on a channel, you can't be like, hey, thanks for messaging us here. Please stop and now email this what and like <laughs> right. no. Like that's just that's <laughs> right. just not gonna work, right? Like yeah. Yeah, we had a we had a conversation with Brian Solis, and we were talking about how this Global 100 Bank came to us to use WhatsApp for customer service, which was not something that they were going to even remotely entertain in February. But it was he was saying like, yes, this changes the entire economy. We have uh, heretofore taken the life that you lead as a person and told you you need to channel all your communications to us through this like artificial means that's not natural to you, and COVID is going to change all of that. Like you as an organization are going to have to meet them on their terms. Ain't no one got time to, to fill sure. out the extra form or go through whatever. Right. Oops. Yeah. And that, that's exactly it. Right. And, it, and I think one way you kind of see this is um, really, really um, in, um, you know, notifications from customers where if they identify a threat or if they identify a, a, a risk and it, it's, it's going to be some sort of, a, um, you know, due, due diligence, awareness, customer notification. Hey, we saw this, this defect. Um, and a lot of organizations who don't necessarily have that self-reporting mechanism or, or they force it only in one channel, you know, please email us only on this thing. And they're like, no, you're, you're lucky I, I told you about this vulnerability I saw. You're lucky I messaged you on LinkedIn exactly. at all. Right? Like, exactly. now you want me to go fill out this form and do, like, I'm not going to do that, right? Um, Please fill out so, this jury. It, 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 exactly, right? It, it's, 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 a, um, it's, it's important. Um, and, and I think that we have to meet customers where, where they're at. And security leaders need to evolve to that. Yep. So you, you brought up... Um, you know, this enablement thing, and we'll, we'll get to another set of questions, but I am curious, especially, uh, Anthony, since you worked at Capital One. So as a CISO, do you guys have experience having to go down the hall and bring risk and compliance or the CRO, as you said, Larry, any other members of the team to the table and be like, okay, what is it you over here need? And what is it you over here aren't willing to to let them do. How have you engaged that sort of inner department diplomacy? Yeah, Larry, you want to go first? Yeah, yeah. So, so that's that's really part of our job, right? It is we have to be the co-minglers or the wranglers of the cat, so to speak, that we like to say a lot of bringing all the the relevant people to the table to have that full discussion, because what tends to happen is the business is making a decision that they need to for their P and L. Right. Uh, because that's being driven from the board and the CEO down into that business leader. So they've got their job and what has to happen. They then are off. They are they are going down. the road. And the only person who tends to early on get involved in that conversation is legal. Right. Because there's very clear legal lines that they have to stay within. But outside of that, it is these other business entities. And, and at the end of the day, so we've realized or I should say good CISOs have begun to realize we don't own risk. It's not our risk. We are there to advise the business on risk and help them make the right decision. But at the end of the day, the decision is theirs. So we are the cat wrangler who is saying, here's, here's the technology-based risk, here's the database risk, here's the risk associated with what you want to do. We're going to bring in the, the risk officer. We're going to bring in the general counsel. We're going to bring in the compliance officer to talk about all of these other things that are, are, are components of all of the risks that we're talking about. Because we're not necessarily going to be a, an expert in each of the risk areas, right? Because there may be regulatory risk, right? So you want the compliance officer 
who's going to come in there if you have one that's different from the general counsel. There may be legal risk, right? There's going to be all these different aspects of it that you want to make sure you get on the table and have the respective experts talking about it so that you can create an entire risk profile associated with it and then make the right business decision. Because at the end of the day, it's not going to be up to the CISO. As much as we would like it to be, it's not going to be (laughs) up to the CISO. But if we don't inform them and communicate and educate them on what that risk is, it then is on us. Even though, right, let's be very honest and clear here. Um, uh, if if the, the CISO, and you heard the term probably chief information scapegoat officer, right? <laughs> at the end of the day, when the risk that we've identified um, and they accept it as a business uh, gets infiltrated or exposed in any way, they're literally going to turn to the CISO or CSO and say, how could we let this happen? Yeah, And you're going to say, well, listen, we communicated all the risks. We made certain exceptions based on the risk, and this still happened. So it's not how do we – we knew that there was a possibility. We accepted it. Now we've just got to figure out how we move forward. Yeah, I think one of the things, um, you know, as you kind of look at this, um, pulling in and talking to other entities within a company, it's one of the most important things that you you can do. Um, You know, I used to think that, you know, you went from, you know, hacking technology to just hacking other leaders, right? Like you Mm. you just socially engineer people to kind of say, hey, this is where we kind of go, right? Um, Now, I I think there's still some, some truth to that, but like the... I've, I've been asked before, like, hey, what's the most important book, most, most important book that a security leader should read? Um, and I actually think it's an old book. Um, it's, it, it's actually getting to yes, right? It's mm-hmm. how do you shift from positional negotiation to principal negotiation? And because it, when you talk to a compliance officer, a risk officer, like oftentimes if you just go print, you know, positional, you're like, well, we can't have any risk. Okay, well... We can't, we got to make the business work. It's so you got a bunch of like impasses and then right. you, you negotiate, you split the difference. And then it's like, okay, we, we don't make anybody happy. Everyone, you know, it, it's a, it's a half-baked solution. But if you, if you look at risk from the principles of what you're really trying to drive, like, right. Hey, we want the company to make money, right? Yeah. We need the company to be successful. Okay, cool. How do we do that in a meaningful way? Like, wow. And so then when you, when you can make sure that you're aligned, so how do you get to yes effectively? Um, and so fundamentally, like if any CISO hasn't read getting to yes, my, like that's a thing I'm like, oh, you should, you should probably do that. <laughs> like it's an important thing. It's an important concept. Um, and it will change and should change how they, they engage those partners. Um, you know, the, I, I, I saw a thing on, um, uh, a, 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 a post or blog the other day. And it was one of what's the most important interview question that, you know, a new CEO should ask um, a, a CISO. I don't think it has anything to do with technology. I think that it's actually, um, if, if a CEO or CIO asked the CISO, explain to me exactly how did your last company make money? And if they can't do that, <laughs> Right. If they're if they're like, well, we sold the customers, we sold things, right. but like I don't know how we made the yeah. things and like things yeah. just show like like dude, you are not qualified to make any determination of risk. That's absolutely right. correct. But if they but, answer that question with we've got this we had this technology that supported the stuff we did. But it, it boils down to mm-hmm. it's like, mm-hmm. well, actually, we made money. Like if you look at Walmart, they make money on the supply, the, the, the gap between, you know, supplier to, to what actual cost components. They're really good at third-party management arbitrage. Like that's where they, they, they win, right? Um, and so when they, if you can understand like, well, we make money in the arbitrage game or we make money in, we made money in this, then you're like, okay, you actually understand the company. You can make determinations of risk. As opposed to a lot of people are like, well, we bought this AI thing and man, zero trust. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even even uh, even ragging on zero trust a lot lately. <laughs> I, I, I love it. It's it, it's just it, it, it's everyone's like saying it and they're going to it. And I'm like, hey, what is it? And they're like, well, you know, it's like zero trust, Damn. you know. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Cool, like awesome, right? Um, but you have to meet you have to meet the company where where, where it's at. You have to uh, you have to have that balanced decision um, because getting back to how you engage with customers is so pivotal. Like if you fail to do that, um, then 
you're creating an entire organization and tech stack that is misaligned with the corporate objectives. Yep. Uh, and that's where you have to, to look at the technology and enable it and empower it. Um, so that's good. That's good. Well, I mentioned that you've been ragging on zero trust. So that means I'm going to take, take the conversation, um, in a slightly different direction. So you're both quite vocal on industry issues to our listeners. I would say definitely follow both of these men on LinkedIn one because they're hilarious, but two, because their posts are a lot of food for thought. So, um, they're not just hot takes, you know, some seem to be you guys ruminating out loud. Others seem to be soliciting feedback from your peers. Um, but you've had a lot recently and I kind of wanted to take some of the topics in turn. So Larry, we'll start with you. Uh, I saw a recent comment as of, I think yesterday, um, you commented on a post by Naomi Buckwalter, excuse me, who is director of information security at Energage. And the story was of an InfoSec professional who had recently gotten all the way through the hiring process, but had the job offer actually rescinded, which is like next level stuff, um, simply because he didn't have a college degree. And, you know, there are merits to the argument that you don't need college and InfoSec or, you know, what is the merit of that given the fact that he's had 30 years of experience in the field? Anyway, obviously annoying that there's like this box to check, right? Right. And, and you wrote, I can I quote here, HR must change, but we must help them change. If we don't each stand up and help HR, then we too are failing potential candidates talking about InfoSec hires. So uh, hoping you could give us a little bit on how CISOs and security teams can collaborate with HR uh, on, on filling the, the many job vacancies that are out there. Yeah, so, so a relationship with HR is probably one of the most important relationships relationships that you can build as a CISO in a new business, right? Because when you come in, you're going to be asked to do a lot of things, right? Build a program, do this, change the culture possibly based on who was leading the organization last. And so with that, you need a partner in HR to allow you to get recs right, to allow you to get the, the, the salaries associated with the recs right, and all of those things so that you can find the proper people, right? If you want to then diversify your talent because you felt you have too much of one type of skill set, if you feel you don't have enough diversity, all of those things in building a team matter, right? If you don't have HR in your corner to help them understand what it is you need and how you measure a candidate, you're going to fail. And, and you can't let, let HR always dictate it because HR has been operating a certain way for a long time. And it's not their fault. It's how they've been operating. And in many organizations, if that HR leader came from somewhere where cybersecurity was looked at as IT, they're going to grade it and measure it like it's IT. And, and I say this a lot. We're unicorns. Right? And it's, it's not to say we're better than, it's just saying we're different. And so we can't be graded the same way. So you've got to work with HR to help them understand that. And if you create the right relationship, they'll be nimble right? and, and allow you to, you know, sort of usurp some of those check boxes that have historically been in place. That opportunity that was mentioned on that LinkedIn article upset me. It upset yeah. me a lot. And the reality is the post is, is one of many I've seen. But nowhere have I seen anyone in any of the posts do anything other than say how bad it was. And, and I think this has been our challenge for many things going on in our industry right now, from diversity to hiring, the talent gap, all of these different things. We talk a lot about how bad it is, but no one talks about, well, what are the things that can be done to help? And so if you read through that entire thread, not one person in there talked about working with HR. Yeah. They blamed HR. They said HR is a problem. Right. That there was, oh, this should never happen. Oh, send him my way. All of those types of things. But no one said, hey, how do we work with HR? How do we make these things happen? Because at the end of the day, I use the, the Black Lives Matter movement that's going on right now. And this is outside of the organization of Black Lives Matter. This is the hashtag statement. The, the large global protests that are going on right now are only having the impact that they have because multiple people of different colors, races, and backgrounds have finally stood up together to say, hey, this is a problem. How do we fix it? In our industry, we can't sit back and complain about something until we collectively stand up and go to HR and say, hey, HR, how can we fix this? How can we as an industry work with you as an industry so that in your hiring practices and the things that you look at begin to change and you become more nimble holistically 
to enable each organization to get better from a talent standpoint. Because the number one question I get all the time from people is, how do I enter the cybersecurity field? Because every new job I apply for wants one to three years experience. Well, how do you get one to three years experience and enter the field? Like those two things don't match up. But when you look at HR, that's what they've known. That's how it's been. So that's why I made that statement. I'm trying to do it myself and I'm trying to push people um, elsewhere to do the same. Yeah, no, that's that's really 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 great point, and and I think there's 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 a piece also where you know as HR continues to you know a wrestle with this and security leaders we we need to particularly for inside the organization help educate and bring them along on and 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 really advocate for it right. Um, part of this here is that you know the. I would say that the market has historically, when you think about like I, IT in general. Um, you know, a lot of organizations, it's a, it's a company centric market, like meaning companies have the jobs and then people are supposed to be like, Hey, we have a job. You should be grateful uh, through the interview process or whatever. Right. Um, where security leaders and leaders in general need to also advocate of recognizing, Hey, we need to be respectful, follow through, have meaningful conversations with the candidates that candidate experience matters in a really, really big way. I, I remember, um, it was last year. Before I started Delve Risk, um, I was was in discussions with a very large organization. Um, we'd gone through a number of rounds because um, I was considering taking a role. And I want to say it was the the CIO had had to reschedule a meeting with me or the interview a me- interview. And I was like, okay, that's fine. Um, they rescheduled a second time, and I told the HR person, I was like, hey. Not sure what's going on, you know that. Uh, and then they're like, "Listen, we need to shift it again." It was in the same day, and I that same day I told them I was like, "I'm no longer interested in the role." And they're like, "Well, what do you mean? Um, you're one of our top candidates." Uh, and I was like, "If you guys can't honestly keep a schedule with candidates, like this is the best you will ever treat me." Like throughout this experience, this is the yes. ultimate pinnacle of how you will ever treat me as an employee. <laughs> she was like, are you, she literally said, are you serious? I'm like, yeah, I'm no longer interested in the role. I really wish you the best. Um, Good luck. And, and she got, sent me a note back and she's like, thanks. Um, it forced us to have some, in, some additional conversations if you'd ever love to engage. And I was like, no, I really wish you guys the best. Um, and for me, like we need to think about like candidate centric. What does that mean? If they're, if you, your company has a hard, bright red line of, of a requirement, Talk to people like, hey, we, we can we can move on this or not. It should never be a surprise, um, you know. Of like, oh my gosh, I didn't I didn't fit that one checkbox. So like, you know, that, that that's that that's insane. Right, and it's a reflection of the culture. If you aren't willing to have that communication or flexibility, what is it going to be like when you're actually in that role? That's I, I, that's I, the point right there. I had a, a, a chat with a buddy. He's like, you know, maybe they, you know, he was, you know, they have incidents, they have crazy stuff. And I'm like, yeah, but still, right. <laughs> it, it, Respect. It, it, yeah, and, that, and that's really what it is. It's like, listen, I'm respecting you as a candidate, respecting them enough to carve out your day. I, I actually think, um, and the, so somebody builds this app. I want to, I want some credit on it, but like, I actually think that there should be an app where a can someone says, Hey, I, they will pay candidates for their time, right? Like, oh, I'm going to go do an interview. Okay, cool. Someone's going to pay me because I'm, I'm taking away time. And then I think you might get some actual respect on absolutely candidates with like, hold on, hold on. We can't reschedule this because we got to pay this guy $700 for the day. That's <laughs> Whose budget is that coming out of? For the <laughs> right? Um, because today it's all on candidates. Like, uh, you know. We need you to take the day off work. We need you to fly up here. We need you to do this. Well, maybe not now and flying, but you know what I mean? Like, yeah, right. So you, it's, right. It's yeah. HR and, and, and tech leadership partners. No, it's true. Because right now, if you think about that dynamic, they're holding the carrot in the air and ask you to jump for it. Yep. Right. So, hey, here's the mm-hmm. carrot. Jump for this carrot. Jump for this carrot. And candidates do it left and right. Yep. And, and the reality is, is it's really about prioritization. Right, whatever was going on, right? Yes, maybe an emergency happened. But the CIO, I'm sure, has multiple direct reports that could have, for an hour, dealt with whatever oh, that yeah. thing was while this happened. So, yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. 
Well, if we're taking it back to other roles that the CISO plays in the organization, there's this constant refrain that CISOs need to be elevated. Cybersecurity isn't just an IT issue. It should really be a board level issue. And this is true at many companies, but not all of them. So what recommendations can you offer on how to communicate to boards um, or perhaps taking this back to just the role of the security leader within the organization? Sure. I'll um, let AJ start this one. Cool. Thanks. Um, yeah. So I think that fundamentally it kind of goes back to if the security leader doesn't actually know, like if they don't read the, 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 the 10K, the Q, they don't listen to the earnings calls, they got no business being in the boardroom, like hands down. Like if, if any CISO says, oh, I should be in the boardroom, but they don't listen to the earnings call, like, no, you shouldn't be in the boardroom. Um, you, you don't understand the business. You don't understand the context of it. If you don't understand how your budget actually works and you just trust that your finance guy handles your budget, then you shouldn't be in the boardroom. Um, there, there are fundamental aspects of being a business leader um, that, that kind of require that. I say all that and it typically upsets people um, when, when, when they're like, well, you know, my focus is this. I'm like, no, your focus is actually to help drive revenue for the company in a meaningful, safe manner. Like that's your focus. That's it. Um, and so what that means is that most security leaders who don't want to go down that route and don't think about it in that context, and they just want to instead talk about how they're adopting this new technology or whatever it is, um, they're not, in my opinion, many times they're not mature enough to be there, right? Like they, 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 sh- they need to grow as broader business leaders before they should actually sit at that, um, at that other, other table. Um, otherwise, like if you're talking to your board about vulnerabilities, you're like, you're missing the point. Right. Yeah. I was going to say, I can imagine a CISO standing in front of a board of directors and just trying to talk about new software that they've acquired. It's, it's the latest in EDR and that you're just going to get like crickets. It's, it's true. Right? And but there are, and, and there are templates for boards talking about vulnerability and like, whoa, like you are missing the boat here, right? Um, you should be talking about, which is why I love things that really do get into more holistic modeling of like risk tolerance and how you kind of are managing that down. Um, talking about integration and how you're helping the overall organization. Um, and those are really hard problems to, to have and, and, to, and, and to solve, um, which I think you can be successful almost agnostic of where you handle the reporting structure. Uh, I forget who it was. Um, it might have been Phil, who said, who, Venables, who said, if you're worried about where you report, then like you're missing the boat, right? Like um, as a security leader, you should be worried about the impact of what you're doing. Um, now there are distinctions in like whether you're first line, second line, third line, however that works as, as, as a security leader. Um, but I think that it, it does matter um, what you communicate as opposed to just getting FaceTime. Yeah, I will add a caveat to what you said, though. The the impact of what you're doing can be impacted on by where you report. So yeah, I, I would I draw that direct line. Absolutely. Um, because I, I know CISOs that, that have improper reporting structures, so they are hand-tied yep. in their ability to make impactful change. But to your point, right, the CISO role, this is the problem with it. The majority of companies who are hiring for it have no idea what they're trying to hire for. They have zero clue of what they're trying to hire for that role, which is why the role is so broad. You have some roles mm-hmm. where it's titled as CISO, and and uh, that person is really a technologist. They're deep in the tech. They they have zero executive level um, anything, right? They are they are geek. They are ones and zeros. Everything they talk about, but they're titled the CISO, and so they get into conversations with certain expectations and then they go interview for their next role. And that role is not tech. And they are going in and they're talking at, during the interview process about ones and zeros. And they don't understand why they didn't get hired. They don't understand, you know, why they weren't a, a good candidate. Conversely, right. These business leaders who, who have gotten into CISO roles, who understand the business extremely well and understand risk, and, but don't understand tech at, at any depth. And they get a CISO job in a certain type of business, and then they go for interview for a new CISO role, and they don't understand why all this technology stuff is being thrown at them. This role is so broad and so vast, and there's no, there's no real training. I mean, there is quote-unquote training 
But the reality is it is it is boots on the ground training that most CISOs go through that is more impactful than any book level training, any types of CEH training or whoever it is that you can go through. It is that boots on the ground training. Yeah, and it strikes me that that means it's probably that the enterprises don't know what they want out of security, right? Instead of like security by design or trying to understand the risk as it res- relates to the PNL, it's literally like we need a cybersecurity person and they just kind of bolt it on to the organization. If you think about this, right? Like, and because at Delverse, we do a t- lot of research on um, Fortune 1000 and companies and, and executives, right? Like, there's 252. Fortune 1000 companies that do not have a named CISO. Yeah. Right. Like that's a lot. Now it's, there's somebody responsible for it somewhere within the organization, but they do not have a a named person as with that title and that, you know, whatever the, the he-man powers that can kind of confirm (laughs) on that. Right. Like, um, and that's pretty interesting because when when you're saying Fortune 1000, these are companies with over $2 billion in revenue. Yeah. Right. Like, that's that's not a small number here, um, and so, so it also means they're probably sitting on a lot of data too, including PII. A lot of like data, you know, a lot of information, right? But what happens is the moment there's a breach, there's a new role. Hey, yeah. right. gotta we, we and like we're gonna pay up the CISO. There are CISOs who make a lot more than the entire cyber budgets of other Fortune 1000 companies. Yes, like that is. Insane. And those are still CISOs are um, all at a post-breach company. Right. And I, I also saw that you guys released that interesting pie chart about the background of CISOs. Yeah, and, you know, and it was like technologists for sure. And even a small slice of like auditors, but like a pretty heavy proportion were governance and risk people, like about a third. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that speaks to Larry's point about it's up to the organization to determine what they want out of a CISO rather than, right. and then the CISO then has to understand that fit. If you are the technology right. person, don't go into the risk or governance uh, position. Absolutely. And and, and and that's where, and you're seeing like it used to be, and people would say, oh, well, you know, CISOs change every 18 uh, months, two years. Um, I know that that's old data because the data that we're seeing mm. across the Fortune 1000, like that's not the case, like at all. Um, you know, 10 years are much longer, particularly in, in larger organizations. Um, because what, as the CISO lands and as they figure out what they like, who, what kind of security leader they want or need to be for the organization, um, there's a bigger incentive to have that stickiness. And, and, you're, and you're seeing that. I mean, you know, very, very long tenures um, at uh, a number of these organizations. So um, we'll be putting some guidance out on that as well at some point. Well, especially if you're trying to build processes or figure out up. It's going to take you a while. It's going to take you longer than 18 months. Yep. Um, yeah, this is all reminiscent of a conversation I had with Raj Samani two years ago in London. He was on a panel of ours. And I love the way Raj talks about this. But it was like a whole... Uh, audience of infosec directors cybersecurity analysts and he's like how many of you know a CISO who's gone on to become a ceo and like just crickets and he's like right yeah because we don't touch the business like you don't if you don't touch revenue like what upward mobility do you have you know you're just going to get stuck absolutely that's it's it's true now i do think that the off-ramp of a CISO is entrepreneurship yeah, um, I, I I think that in a pretty profound way, and you're seeing more, you know, CISOs who are trying to get on boards and doing more of that type of stuff. I think that there's definitely an aspect of entrepreneurship. Um, but yeah, you have to touch the PL, you have to have some aspect of, of, of responsibility. But the, the primary thing, and then again, pulling it back to 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 the, what you guys do is like understanding your customers, understanding communication, understanding the, the processes of the business. Um, and then, then you can effectively make decisions on how to secure them um, or accept them. Right. Um, right. And, and you kind of work, work from there. So cool. Awesome. Shifting gears just a little bit, Larry, I thought that you helped found the international consortium of minority cybersecurity professionals. Can you tell us more about the mission? 
Yeah, so so it's pretty simple. Um, you know, ICMCP was was founded with the sole purpose of recognizing there were not enough minorities uh, and women in the field of cyber, right? And that in order for the industry to really be the best industry that it could, building a diverse pipeline of women and minorities is an is an important part of the future of the industry, right? Additionally, from a people of color and uh, you know underserved communities, cybersecurity is one of the one of the fields that that we feel can change the socioeconomic uh, uh, impact of people of color and people from underserved communities because that is a component of a lot of the social injustice that we see going on around the world. And so, with those two things that exist. Uh, we're just trying to make a little bit of a difference. Cool. Yeah, I really appreciate addressing sort of almost uh, brazen is not the right word, but really openly and transparently saying like, this is also a wealth gap issue. Right. right? No, it is. It it, it absolutely is. A lot of people, I don't think really get that. And so Mm -hmm. a lot of people will talk about cyber and say, yeah, oh, you know, you can make a lot of money in cyber, but they don't, they don't see that a lot of social injustice. And, and for me, it's, it's a passion because I lived it. Like that's where that's, I grew up in that. And so I recognize what's, it means to come from an underserved community. And I recognize what the field of cybersecurity has enabled me to do financially to enable me to not allow my kids to experience the same things that I experienced growing up, right? And so I've basically made generational changes moving forward because I've got my my twins that are going to be graduating from college um, in a year. They're seniors this year. I've got a um, a 17 year old senior in high school who's who's going to most likely be going to the Naval Academy. I've got, you know, and then two behind them. And I'm watching the experiences that they're having growing up. I'm watching them. You know, I was able to take them on vacation to two weeks to China. That was not something I ever experienced as a child. Right. And so the experiences the broadness that I'm being able to give them as it relates to their visibility of what the world looks like um, is way different than anything I was ever able to do. And the reality is, is if I was not in this field, the likelihood that those things will have happened is very, very slim to none. And so I see what it's done and enabled me to do. And I want to pass that on. I want to push that and enable that for other people of color um, to be able to hopefully change their narratives as well. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's awesome. We've seen a lot sort of pop up lately. You know, there's um, the black tech pipeline, uh, black girls who code, stuff like that. I think that's really interesting in terms of um, what do I want to call it? Like the longer term outlook of a social justice issue, right? There is the, the house is on fire right now, but there's also like, how are we solving uh, big problems going forward? I also want to say from somebody with a marketing background as Ashley and I have, um, there's got to be ancillary benefits to also having those diverse viewpoints at a risk assessment level, right? Because you're talking about, we've talked about touching the P&L, you know, we know that there were banking institutions targeting minority populations uh, and willing to attain a certain level of risk uh, for subprime mortgages, but maybe that wasn't the best business decision as we saw, you know, Heather McGee is a a great speaker at, you know, is an advocate of how these racist structures also impact everyone. It's, it's, it's like the 2008 financial crisis is the result of racist policies that went after separate. So I'm just, this is a long way of saying like just those diverse viewpoints, because Ashley and I have seen like the marketing faux pas, or I would, I would say disasters that happen when clearly like only white people were in the creative room. (laughs) They thought like, like let's like the Kendall Jenner Pepsi ad, right? Like hand a Pepsi to the the cops and like, everything's okay. Like that is right. No one who is a person of color was in that room or conversely, the culture was that they didn't feel safe enough to speak up. And you, and you, you saw that, I mean, particularly as, as you look at like the AI technology. Yes. That's mm-hmm. kind of, um, you know, I know Google had an insane faux pas, like <laughs> years back. I won't even get into how yeah, yeah. that was um, just 
Like I was, it was insane, right? Um, or the facial recognition in Samsung cameras. Like, <laughs> oh man, yes. Oh gosh. And so, so do having diverse thoughts and perspectives, backgrounds, like it's all important. I think one thing that, that's exciting about um, organizations like ICMCP is that you know there's a lot of research that shows that crossing that that that, that when when individuals make that first hundred thousand dollars you know, 50, 60, $100,000 in their career and which a lot of, you know, entry level beginning, you know, mid-level cybersecurity roles is where you start getting into just based on experience. It doesn't just impact the person. It impacts their families. That's right. Because, um, you know, when we, you're, you realize you're like, wow. And I realized this one year, I was like, I made more than my mother made in her career. Like this is, this is crazy. Right. That part. And so, it becomes a family component and then everything on top of that really impacts the individual more. Right. But like, there's a, there's this kind of, of, of ledge. Um, and so it's important to, for these types of groups to have a tremendous amount of support because, you know, it, 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 it changes generations. Um, and so it's, it's definitely an exciting piece here. So, and we've touched, I just want to close out with the time that we have, but we've touched on HR, but like as a business leaders, what would be your advice to your peers on how you can, try to steer greater inclusion or kind of affect that change. We talked about HR, I think from the skills level, sure. but, but are there other moves that can be made inside the, inside the leadership suite? Yeah. So let me, let me jump on that really, really quick. So one thing I think that, that is important to consider, um, and it's a question I, I like to ask people is um, cause everyone talks about, you know, we got to have, you know, a diverse bench. We, we, we want to have a diverse slate for interviewing and, um, there's a lot of um, just similarity bias that happens in the system, right? Just people say, hey, they're similar, so boom. And, and similarity bias is just an interesting, fascinating study in and of itself. Um, one of the questions I, I, I often push people on are, okay, look at your five, 10 key initiatives that you're actually driving, the company's driving, in tech, whatever. And they're, okay, cool. Who's leading them? Because I can tell you who's going to get promoted. It's not mm-hmm. going to be somebody who's not leading those initiatives. Right. Right. That's interesting. Um, and so when you realize that, wow, I don't have any women leading any of my key initiatives. Like the question is like, are, do you have no women who are qualified? Oh, no, I'm not saying that. Okay. So then, then why are they not? Because when it comes time for promotion, what ends up happening is around the promotion room, everybody tries to be objective and unbiased. And they say, let's look at the measure of the programs that they drove. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, we have, we have these people of, you know, demographic, color, race, gender, they didn't drive any of the key most impactful initiatives for the company. We have to reward and promote the people who did. And the similarity bias that happened two years ago realizes right then in the promotion room and the people who really want to affect change um, also they're sitting there like, okay, well, we're going to pick based off of merit. And so they try to drive it for meritocracy, but there's this in, in implicit bias that happened, you know, er, much earlier in, in, in the chain. So, you know, security leaders, if they want to affect change, tech leaders, if they want to affect change, look at those key initiatives, who's driving them, you know, make sure that you're, if, if the leadership of, of those programs are diverse, then I fundamentally believe you're going to have a different sets of conversations in the promotion room. Right. I mean, I'm a fan of JP Morgan. They promoted one MD of color this year in tech, I think it was. Maybe in tech. Like one. Yeah, that's appalling. That's not. <laughs> yeah, so so I want to take what what a, what AJ said and and say sum it up this way. Um, tech leaders have to be purposeful. They have to lean forward. They have to be intentional. So th- there's been a lot over the last seven to 10 years where tech leaders have voiced what they wanted to do. They've said, Hey, we want to do this. And then what they've done, though, they've then passed the buck. They've then said, voiced it and said, you know, well, this head of diversity is going to take, make sure I get the right people in and they're going to help mm-hmm. with that. Cause we started a diversity initiative. Um, the head of HR, I've told them that that's what I want. So I'm ex- sitting back expecting that they're going to get me diverse candidates to look at. Right. Um, I've got diverse people on my team, so I'm sitting back waiting for them to come to me, right, with what their desires and their path is and, and, and all that. And, and I'm what, no, that's not what, if you really want to change the narrative, lean forward, right? You need to be helping to lead the change. You need to be intentional with your conversation with your head of diversity. 
You need to be staying on top of it. You need to be intentional in your conversations with HR, right? Challenging them, getting statistics and metrics associated with the diversity of the candidates they're bringing to you. And if it's not acceptable, pushing back to make sure that it gets to a level of acceptability for you. You need to be leaning forward for your female and male and uh, uh, candidates of color that are working for you right now and challenging them with leadership opportunities. Don't sit back and always just say, well, I, I have some, because what, I have some people here because one of the things we've realized is there are organizations who get in diverse talent and then they stifle them. They keep yep. them at this one level and they never get above this one level. But when they talk about diversity, they show their percentages and their numbers. They're like, hey, and you're like, but none of them are in management positions. Or none yeah, let's, of them put that, let's put that in a pivot table. and, and <laughs> Exactly. And it looks a lot different. Right. So, so for me, it comes down to leaning forward, being intentional, and being purposeful in your actions. And it, that we are no longer in the time of, of sitting back and waiting for somebody else that's got more responsive, direct responsibility in that area. Every it, single person has some. And a, a really, really great corollary example is a lot of times organizations, particularly big organizations, they'll have a, a college recruitment program, right? Um, and I've been in many rooms where I've heard CIOs, COOs say things like, okay, but we need to make sure we're methodical on promoting the college recruitment people who we bring in so that, you know, we can show for the next, next year of recruitment that, Hey, in 10 years they made manager, and but they don't have that conversation about women or diverse candidates because it would be unfair. And they're like, and you're like, wait a minute, hold on. It's perfectly fine to have that conversation here for college recruitment, which happens to be indexed towards your alma mater, by the way. Right. Uh, there's a whole, whole, whole institutional <laughs> bias in that direction. Right. That's a different conversation. Yeah, but, we, but we don't want to talk about saying, hey, this is we want to be methodical on people that we bring in from the outside that would help you know, drive a different type of conversation. It's like, well, you know, and it's like, no, 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 we need, we need to have a meaningful conversation and be purposeful. So I think that, that you know, being very, very deliberate, being purposeful, um, intentional, I think those are absolutely key. And that's part, a really, really great way to summarize what I was trying to get at. Cool. All right, gentlemen, I think that's the time for today. I mean, obviously this conversation, I feel like we can go for hours. We could have sub episodes, we could have yeah. <laughs> threads. Um, but I thank you for the time. I know you're both very busy um, and uh, we'll look forward to the next time. Awesome. Thanks a lot. Perfect. All right. Thanks, Thanks guys. Thank have you, guys. One. All right. Speak later. Bye. Bye. And that wraps another episode of The Zero Hour brought to you by Safeguard Cyber. Many thanks to Abby Bruce for sound design and production, Matthias Cefaletti for our theme music, and to our guests, as always, for lending their time and insights. Stay safe, stay strong. This is The Zero Hour, signing off for now.